This is our final Sunday in which we're dealing with questions from our students. Uh, two or three months ago, I asked Pastor Brian Edmonds, what, what are some questions that our students are asking? And he gave me a list. And I'd like to deal with the last one of those today and the question submitted by a student, I don't know, I don't know which student, was simply this, what happens when I die? What happens when I die? I was impressed that a student would ask this. You know, many people go through life, even later in life, with giving very little thought to what happens when we die. Often in life, we're, we're consumed with planning for a career, and then throughout our careers, we're planning for retirement. But few people give thought to the great eternity that looms ahead of us. And so I thought this was a particularly good question to have been asked by a student. Now, in trying to address this question, I'm going to approach it from the point of view of one who is a believer in Jesus Christ. That's the perspective taken in the passage that PV read a moment ago, and I think that was the intent of the student who asked the question, what happens when I die as a believer? For those who are not believers in Jesus, there's a very different outcome at death. The Apostle Paul writes about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in verse 8 when he refers to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He writes, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. But I'm going to approach this today from the perspective of one who is a believer in Jesus. For those who are in Christ, what happens? What happens immediately when we die? First of all, we'll leave our bodies behind. Peter, in his second letter, the first chapter in verse 13, and he's, as he's addressing the church, uses these unusual words. He says, I think it's right as long as I'm in this body. In other words, while I'm temporarily in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Note how he refers to death as the putting off of the body. Putting off of the body. The body is viewed by Peter, Paul, other New Testament writers as a temporary dwelling place for the human spirit. James, in the book of James, chapter 2 and verse 26, says the body apart from the spirit is dead. The spirit lives on, but this body dies here. When we die, we will leave our bodies behind. The Apostle Paul brought this same emphasis in writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He refers to the body as a tent. He uses that term to refer to our bodies as a temporary dwelling place. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we were in, still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared this very thing is 
for this very thing is God who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. Paul says that while we're in this tent, in these bodies, we are longing for something better and the Holy Spirit is the one who assures us of some, that something better that lies ahead. When we die, we'll leave our bodies behind. There's a most interesting account in the last verses of the book of Deuteronomy about the death of Moses. I think it's a remarkable passage. Moses knew God in a very close relationship. God said of Moses that he spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Their communion and their communication was remarkable. Moses had led the Israelites out of their bondage in Egypt toward the promised land, but God had told Moses he himself, Moses, would not enter the promised land. So at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, the Bible says uh, that the Lord took Moses up the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, and the Lord showed him the land. He wouldn't enter it, but the Lord showed him the promised land. And the Lord said, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you will not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Now think about this for a moment. This one whom God knew face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses died and the Lord himself buried Moses. It shows us a number of things. Number one, it shows the Lord's care and concern for the human body. He didn't just leave Moses' body lying on the ground to decay. God himself buries the body of Moses. And no one knows the place of his burial to this day, we read. God buried Moses' body, but Moses lived on. We know that because in the New Testament, we read of a most remarkable experience. It's found in Matthew 17 and also in Luke chapter 12. Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and in the very glory of God, he, he becomes bright uh, light in this brightness. Peter, James, and John are observing and there with him is Moses and also Elijah. And they're talking with Jesus about his departure that he would accomplish at Jerusalem, about his crucifixion, about what was ahead. Here's Moses, alive and well, talking with Christ about this great centerpiece of God's plan, the crucifixion that Jesus is going to undergo in Jerusalem. Moses lived. His body was buried, but Moses yet lived in the presence of God. At death, believers, those who have embraced Jesus in his salvation, like Peter, like Paul, like Moses, we will leave behind the tents that are our bodies. But we, we will be with the Lord. This is the, the question I think a lot of people have. I, I hear it quite often uh, from Christians. Well, well, when we die, isn't it just like we go into a state of unconsciousness, like we're asleep for 100, 200, 1,000, 2,000 years? 
That's not very encouraging to me to think about that. Here's what Paul writes. He says, we're always of good courage. For we know that while we're at home in the body, while we're in this temporary dwelling place, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There's no indication of an in-between dwelling place for thousands of years. We're either in the body or at home with the Lord. And with the Lord, I take it to mean his immediate visible presence. Paul makes it even more clear when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 1. And he writes these words, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. I have fellowship with Christ. He's with me, in me now. But to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In other words, there's, there are things I can do here on earth to bear fruit for the Lord, to build his church. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Notice what Paul says here. To depart, to leave the body, to die, is to be with Christ. And I take that to mean in his immediate, visible presence with him in glory. Now, this seems to be, from the passages we've seen so far, clear that when a believer dies, you don't go into an unconscious state for hundreds or thousands of years, but you go to the immediate visible presence of the Lord. You are with him. You are with the Lord. Jesus, before he went to the cross, prayed a great prayer in John chapter 17, and I think verse 13, he says the most beautiful words to the Father. He says, now I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. He's going to die, but he's going to be with the Father in glory. And I think that is true of everyone who knows Christ and dies, that we're with God immediately. Now, this seems clear. Why is it that so many think that we will be in an unconscious state like sleep until Jesus returns? And um, I think there is a, a passage in the New Testament that gives support to that idea, and I'd like to look at it for a moment. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. The Apostle Paul, like others in the New Testament, uses uh, a, a euphemism, that is a figure of speech for death, referring to it as sleep. Referring to somebody as asleep is just kind of a nice way of saying they're, they're dead, <laughs> calling them asleep. And he uses that figure of speech here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Writing the Thessalonians, Paul had talked a good deal about Christ's return in 1 and 2 Thessalonians and what would precede that, what would happen. And some of the Thessalonians apparently were concerned about their loved ones who had already died. Were they going to miss out on this great return of Jesus when the trumpet sounds and we're called up together with him in the Lord and always be with the Lord? Were they going to miss out? 
And I think Paul is here making the point that, no, they're not going to miss out. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That is, the ones who have already died. Your loved ones, fellow believers, friends, family. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep, those who died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet in God, trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. In my opinion, in my understanding of this, Paul is now talking about what's going to happen when Jesus returns. This is when those who've died before, as well as those who are alive when Christ returns, are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. This is when we get our resurrection bodies, bodies like Christ. And that, I believe, is what Paul is addressing here. Now, why does it matter, some will say? Why does it really matter if, you know, you die and you go into an unconscious state and Jesus returns and it's as if no time's passed at all. Kind of like falling asleep, and when you wake up, it's as if no time has passed at all. Why does it matter? What difference does it make? I think it matters a lot. I think it matters to the Lord, and I think it matters to us. To me, it does not seem logical that the Lord would want to break his fellowship with us the one who has loved us with an everlasting love, drawn us to himself, chosen us, redeemed us, placed his spirit within us so that the Bible says he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. And he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Does he mean then never will I leave you except for a couple thousand years when you die and you're in an unconscious state? Never will I leave you. You're joined to the Lord, not to be separated from the Lord. I believe at death, we believers will leave our bodies behind and we will be with the Lord in his immediate, in his very presence. However, we will be anticipating something remarkable that will yet lie ahead for us. In the Lord's presence, as we are also awaiting Jesus' return to the earth, we will be anticipating, looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. John writes of this beautiful uh, event that lies ahead for believers when he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as from God as a bride prepared for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, 
for the former things have passed away. We will be anticipating this when Jesus returns, assuming we've died before he returns. That is the time when Jesus returns, when we will be given new bodies. We will be given new bodies, and Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul talks about these new bodies. Uh, if we back up to the first part of that passage, please. When he says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul, again, is talking about the resurrection, not only the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of believers who will then receive a new resurrection body, an imperishable body. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot inherit the fullness of what God has ahead in these mere mortal human bodies. The perishable does not inherit the imperishable. He writes, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, there will still be believers on earth when Christ comes. Not all believers will have died. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then she'll come to pass as saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So this is my opinion, my understanding of things. In answer to the student's question, what happens when I die as a believer? In my understanding, we will be in the immediate presence of the Lord. We will depart and be with Christ, which is far better glorious beyond description. But there will be something beautiful and remarkable ahead. We'll be awaiting, anticipating, just like Moses and Elijah, the return of Jesus to this earth, when something all the more remarkable will be ahead. The new heavens, the new earth, resurrection bodies like Christ, bodies that are imperishable. There'll be much more that'll happen at that time. There will be a great white throne judgment. Those who do not know the Lord uh, will be apart, as Paul says, in eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. There will be a judgment of believers whereby we will be rewarded but not cast away from his presence because our salvation is secure. There's much I don't understand about all this, but in answer to the student's question, I believe that when Christians die, we're immediately with the Lord in his glorious presence, and we will await the day when Jesus returns and we're given resurrection bodies like his, and we'll live with him in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I'd like to try to get a little more practical here and raise a question I think we can respond to with the passage that PV read a little bit earlier. How should this affect the way we live right now? How should the knowledge of what is ahead affect the way we live here and now on this earth? I want to suggest a few ways. First of all, the knowledge of what lies ahead should cause us to live now with what Peter calls living hope. 
Again, he writes the words you see on the screen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In other words, because of what Jesus has done in his resurrection, what he has secured for us, we have this eager, confident expectation of something that is far better, as Paul says it, a living hope. Secondly, <clears throat> the knowledge of what lies ahead enables us to live with anticipation of something, what Peter calls an inheritance, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What is this inheritance? I don't know. But I know it's mentioned a lot <coughs> in Scripture. For example, in Ephesians 1, Paul says, In him we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to his purpose. In Ephesians 1.14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In Ephesians 1.18, he's praying that our eyes of our hearts be opened, that we know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What we do know from the verse you see on the screen is that this inheritance, this share that we as believers have in the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ is imperishable. It will not wear out over time. It's undefiled. It is not stained or tainted by sin. It's unfading. It will not lose its glory or its beauty. And it is kept for you if you're a believer. And God is the one who is keeping it. Are you living with anticipation of that? I suspect it's something we as Christians don't think of in this life a whole lot. The knowledge of what lies ahead should affect believers this way. <clears throat> Peter goes on to say, we can live with joy in trials. When he says, in this you rejoice, I think he's referring to what he has just spoken of, the this is this imperishable, unfading, undefiled inheritance that lies ahead. You rejoice in this, even though for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Notice how he refers to our time on earth, now for a little while, <laughs> so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Joy and trials, suffering and grief are part of this life. There's no doubt about that. But we can have joy, Peter says, in the midst of this because we know what lies ahead when Jesus comes or if we die before he comes and are in his presence. <clears throat> how should the knowledge of what lies ahead affect how we live now? With pursuit of a holy life. Peter goes on later in the passage and says, therefore, and I think he's referring to all the teaching in verses 3 to 12 that has preceded this, therefore, preparing your minds for action, <clears throat> being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's referring there to Christ's return. Set your hope fully on this grace that's for you when Jesus comes. As obedient children, 
don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, knowing what's ahead, <clears throat> live differently now. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The knowledge of what is ahead for us as believers should stir us to a more holy life. What does it mean to be holy? What is a holy life? Is it a rule-keeping life? Is it a lot of do's and don'ts in life? Is it just being more disciplined? Discipline is good, but I think the simplest understanding of holiness as it's given us in Scripture would be this, likeness to Jesus, likeness to Christ, just becoming like him. That's what holiness is. You should be holy for I am holy, becoming like Jesus Christ. And this comes about as we are yielded to the control of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God works in us, sanctifying us to make us more holy. Knowing what lies ahead should be, a great, should be for us a great incentive to live a more holy life. Related to this, <coughs> greater love for one another. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. True growth and holiness means greater love for one another. Even those we may dislike or with whom we may disagree. Let me ask you this. Do you know any Christians, fellow followers of Jesus that you don't particularly like? People you just don't like to be around. Oh, you know they're your brother or sister in Christ, but, you know, you see them coming down the hallway, maybe you go the other way. We've all had a few people like that in life, haven't we? We, we might as well admit it. C.S. Lewis said something about that that was pretty remarkable. He was talking about, it's in his book, Weight of Glory. He was talking about the, the glory, the gloriousness of believers who are in God's presence. And he says, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to May one be a, they be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship because of the great glory. You think of that person you have difficulty loving, maybe somebody in your own household or your own family who's a believer. You can recognize that they who have embraced Jesus are redeemed by his blood and destined for great gloriousness in his presence, perhaps we could see them differently. C.S. Lewis also said, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And I think that's because if a person is a believer, that person has the Holy Spirit dwelling within how should the knowledge of what's ahead cause us to live differently now? With an eternal perspective toward life, knowing what will and will not 
abide forever. Peter draws this great chapter toward a close when he writes, for all flesh is like grass. He's quoting, I think, from one of the Psalms here. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. He's contrasting the temporariness of life on earth with the permanence of God's truth, God's word. Something that's helped me over the years that I, I shared in a, with you on August 6th, I think, in a sermon was this little diagram. To think about eternity this way. Eternity is represented by the, the line that continues throughout the whole slide. It just keeps going forever. Life on earth, however long it may be, Comparison with eternity is represented by this little dot. We tend to see, think about, dream about, plan for only life on earth. Life within the dot. When the scripture calls us to, in the words of the Apostle Paul, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, set your affections on things above, not on things on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. The scripture often calls us to this way of thinking. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven and from there we await a savior. We've got this eternal inheritance that he seems to speak about quite a lot and think about quite a lot. And I think that's why Paul said to depart and be with Christ is far better. And it gave him a different perspective toward life on earth. Living with eternal perspective doesn't mean we do less for God on earth. It means we do more. Sometimes people with eternal perspective are criticized by those who say, oh, you think about you Christians, think about heaven pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. What matters is what you do here and now. And I would say this, those who know the reality of eternity through faith in Jesus do far more for the Lord's glory in the here and now because they are not controlled by self-indulgent covetousness that ties us to wanting everything in this life. They're willing to make sacrifices with their time, with their money. They're willing to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel if need be because they anticipate the far better inheritance that is being with Christ. I think the church, the contemporary church right now in our time is lost a lot in the way of eternal perspective. Um, Keith Getty, Keith and Kristen Getty are uh, Christian songwriters, uh, hymn writers, uh, contemporary mus musicians. We, we sing some of their songs sometimes. Perhaps their best known um, modern hymn is In Christ Alone. Uh, that's one of his. I love that, that uh, modern hymn. Well, Keith Getty was being interviewed by Warren Smith on Listening In. It's one of the podcasts of the world and everything in it. Now, listen to this interview, and Keith Getty had studied music throughout history, and he said he noticed something striking in studying ancient hymns, 80 to 90 out of 100 dealt to some degree in some way with the topic of eternity. 
80 to 90 percent dealing to some extent with eternity. He said regarding modern songs, only four to six out of a hundred. Four to six. Most modern songs dealing with God and me in the, in, the, in the here and now. Now, while both are important, I would say that it does seem that the contemporary church has lost something of its focus on the beauty and the value of eternal perspective. Then finally, how should knowing what lies ahead affect how we live now with devotion to the gospel? Peter concludes with these words, this word, talking about the word that abides forever, is permanent, that which is lasting, is the good news that was preached to you. I want to remind you again that I'm, I'm, I'm talking from the perspective of one who has received Jesus Christ. And again, Paul writes, for those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's quite a different situation that lies ahead. He refers to the outcome for those who don't know God and don't, don't obey the gospel as suffering the punishment of eternal destruction of, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. However, for those who've embraced the gospel, there's great, 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 great joy ahead. If you're uncertain whether or not you're a Christian, whether or not you really embrace Jesus as your Savior and Lord. It's the most important decision you can make in this life. And before we celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, I want you to have the opportunity to really reflect on that and gain any assurance that you may be needed. Again, Jesus, before he went to the cross in his great prayer in the Gospel of John, prayed to the Father, now I'm coming to you. If you've accepted Jesus, when you come to the doorway of death, because for a believer, death is just a doorway into the immediate presence of God. When you come to death, if your faith is in Jesus, you can say the same thing. Father, now I'm coming to you. You're with me now. You've been with me throughout life, but now I'm coming into your immediate, visible, glorious presence. How can you have that assurance? Simply by embracing through faith what Jesus did for you. You can't deserve it or merit it by good works, good deeds, or good intentions. It's only by embracing through faith what Jesus did when he shed his blood on the cross. If you and I could get to heaven for our, by our good works, Jesus would not have had to come to this earth and die in our place. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous Jesus for the unrighteous, all of us, to bring us to God. He did what we could never do. He paid a debt we could never pay. And he merely calls us by faith to accept that, to turn from our sin and our control of our lives to him, to his lordship and his saving grace. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate at this time is a reminder of what Jesus did. 
We call it a sacrament, something particularly holy because we believe God's presence is at work when we take communion in a beautiful, unique, and special way. And so I want to read these words before we partake so we'll be well prepared. The Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I believe our ushers will bring around some cups if you need one. If you'd like one of these uh, packages, if you would raise your hand, our ushers are bringing some around. Raise your hands up high. I see one or two hands just a bit, a bit higher. Um, they're bringing those around to you. Paul continues then by giving a caution. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What does he mean by that? I think he means communion is for those who have genuinely, sincerely embraced the salvation of Jesus. And those who understand this is not a mere religious ritual that we do in church, but it's, it's truly a proclamation that we have received the benefits of what Jesus did for us. We have personally received this. And so I'd like to take a moment and pray now and give us time to be prepared to take this properly. Would you join me as we pray? Father, I want to first pray for anyone here who is not sure whether he or she has embraced your salvation. If you are uncertain, but you are indeed willing and ready today to turn to Jesus as Savior and Lord, I would invite you right where you are to say a simple prayer using words like this. Dear God, I do believe that Jesus died on the cross for me, that he paid the debt for my sins, and you raised him from the dead to give me eternal life. I turn from my sin, and I turn to you. Be my Savior and my Lord right now. Father, would you prepare us each to take communion in the way that is right in your eyes. Use this holy sacrament to bring renewal of faith, encouragement to your people. Strengthen us with might by your spirit in our innermost being. And now just take a, f a few moments of silence for you to pray and be prepared to take communion.